May we bow our heads in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. If you have a Bible in front of you, and there should be one in the pews, it's that maroon-colored book uh, there, uh, you might like to open it and follow uh, the reading which we've just uh, had to, uh, tonight. It's on page 810 uh, and the top of page 811. Uh, and I'd like you to focus your attention uh, primarily on verse 43 and 44, uh, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. These words are well known. Uh, they're well known, but if we stop and think about them for a minute, we realize how odd they really are. Uh, in the church today, in the world today, uh, we don't like to think that we have enemies. We don't think we should have enemies. Uh, we should be kind to people, nice to people, and so on. They should be kind to us and nice to us. And why can't we all get along? And every time there's a, a dispute in the church or a dispute any, of any sort, uh, anywhere, this is what you hear. You see, we must all come together. Uh, we must all uh, you know, get along with one another because uh, this is where we live, this is how we have to function, uh, whether it's in a building, whether it's in a business, whether it's in a country or whatever it is, this urge, you see, to, uh, to, to be nice and to get along with everybody and even if we disagree, not to allow our disagreements to interrupt uh, our communication and our cooperation with one another. And of course, there is a good and important side to this. I'm not saying that that isn't necessary and important from time to time. But we have to face the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ did not necessarily think that way. He didn't tell his disciples, uh, you've heard it said in old time, you shall uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, but I say unto you, you should love your neighbor and not have enemies. Uh, that's not what Jesus said. He said, I, I say to you, love your enemies. In other words, the assumption is going to be that you will have enemies. And this, of course, was true in his life. Uh, and if we are his followers, it will be true in our lives as well. Think about this for a minute. You see, we have a picture of Jesus uh, as somebody who walked around uh, the streets of Palestine, Galilee, and so on, uh, healing people, raising the dead, walking on water, and so on. Who could possibly object to that, you might think? You know, feeding the 5,000 and all the rest of it. Um, he even fed people on the Sabbath day, uh, which, uh, you know, may have shocked, well, it did shock, uh, some of the people at the time. But I mean, here was somebody who was clearly kind, somebody who was clearly open, somebody who was clearly doing good uh, in society, and yet you look at this uh, and uh, you say to yourself, well, uh, where did Jesus end up? He ended up on a cross. Why did he end up on a cross? He ended up on a cross because he had enemies. Who were these enemies? 
These enemies were people who followed him around, uh, who watched what he was doing, who saw his miracles, who heard his teaching. They realized who he was and what he was doing, and yet they were against him. They were against him because he was doing the will of his father. He was doing the will of God. And you say to yourself, well, how can that be? How is that possible? And yet, if you are a Christian person and you put doing the will of God first in your life, believe me, you will end up with enemies. Now, when Jesus was talking to uh, people in the sermon uh, that we read uh, this evening in this particular text, he concentrated on the sort of people who come along and hit you in the face. He said, you know, if somebody strikes you on one cheek, turn the other one, let him do that as well. This kind of enemy, uh, I think it would be fair to say, is relatively rare in our experience. I'm not saying you don't have anybody like that, um, but we tend to have channeled this sort of violence, you see, in, in our society. Um, we have police forces, or at least people in uniform who drive around in fancy cars, you know, with sirens on them, and I think that's what the police force is supposed to do. Um, and they are there to protect us. And although we may not always realize this, uh, you know, in the ancient world, in the, the, the world of Jesus, that sort of person didn't exist. I mean, you were on your own, uh, and you could quite easily be hit by people, by, be robbed and so on, uh, and left like the man on the road to Jericho, you know, that the Good Samaritan picked up. That was by no means uncommon um, in, in ancient times. So we have to remember this. I said it's relatively uncommon today, uh, I said, because we have a society of law and order, even if we don't always fully appreciate it. So this kind of enemy is perhaps less uh, frequent. We, we don't meet this sort of person that much. Uh, now, I'm not saying you will never have anybody like this, but it's probably rare. Our enemies today tend to be more subtle. Uh, they tend to be people who uh, may on the surface not appear to be enemies at all. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples from my own life and I'll uh, share with you and uh, you may resonate with some of this. When I uh, got a job teaching years ago. Um, one of the people, one of my colleagues uh, in the college where I was teaching, um, befriended me in, in a particular way. I mean, of course, everybody was you know, reasonably nice, but this particular person sort of took me under his wing and uh, sort of coached me of this and that and, and so on. Uh, and, you know, we became quite friendly and uh, I would share things with him and sort of say whether, whether I wasn't happy about this or I wasn't sure about that uh, and all the rest of it. Well, as time went on, I mean, we seemed to have this fairly good relationship, but then one or two things started to bother me because I realized uh, that uh, things were happening in the institution where I was and, things, and I was being called in and asked questions of various kinds. And I thought, well, where does this come from? You know, who is saying this? And where, does, where have they got this idea from that I might be unhappy about something or complaining about something else when I haven't really said anything to anybody? And it puzzled me for quite a long time until one day I was walking past the office of this particular person and I heard, uh, because the walls were paper thin, I heard him inside talking to another one of my colleagues 
uh, and saying the, the, you know, the most negative things you could possibly imagine about me. Well, of course, I was fascinated by this, uh, so I stood and listened. And uh, I suddenly uh, understood that things that I had said had were being twisted out of all recognition and being, uh, you know, conveyed to, uh, to, to other colleagues, uh, you know, as gospel truth, in a way. And people were getting entirely the wrong impression uh, from uh, what I was doing. And, of course, this was shattering. I mean, it's true that I had overheard the conversation, so you might think that wasn't the best way of finding out. But still, uh, I did this, and I thought to myself, oh, maybe I've just misheard, maybe, you know, I couldn't figure this out at all. So I thought after this, uh, well, I'll, I'll just say one or two things. I'll sort of plant one or two seeds and see what happens, you see. So I started saying one or two things that weren't necessarily entirely true. Um, in fact, they weren't true at all, but never mind. Um, just, just to see where they would go, <laughs> you know, what would be made of them. And sure enough, you know, within a very short space of time, the word would get round, and I'd get the feeling that yes, that had been, you know, communicated, and uh, and it would sort of change certain people's attitudes and everything else. So of course, this couldn't go on forever, as you can imagine. And eventually, I had to confront this man, and and say, look, uh, you know, I said, I know what you're doing. I've heard this. I overheard, and I told him the whole story, uh, uh, and so on. And of course, that was the end of that relationship, as you will not be surprised to hear. But I didn't have in my heart any really negative feelings about it. I was puzzled by this. Why would somebody do that? You know, uh, I personally, I'm a very lazy person. I haven't got the energy to do this kind of thing. Um, <laughs> you know, why befriend somebody just to be just to stab them in the back? It doesn't make sense, uh, at least not to me. So I was puzzled by this, and I still am. I mean, I'm talking now. This is 25, 30 years ago, a long time ago, uh, but I still am puzzled uh, by this now. You see that I had made an enemy out of somebody unknowingly. I mean, and unwillingly. Of course, I didn't want anything like this. It just happened. All right, that's one story. Another story, another colleague, sorry I'm talking about colleagues, but these are people who are mostly dead and gone. Um, <laughs> yes, we're still working on some of them, but still. Um, you know, uh, who, uh, who did something uh, that was wrong. Um, I mean, the sort of thing uh, that he should have been dismissed for. And I knew this, and, and a lot of other people knew it as well. And I remember one day we were sitting around, some of the people talking about this, and said, what are we going to do about it? And I said, well, I don't think we should talk about it like this. Uh, we need to confront this situation. And everybody sort of looked at me and sort of said, oh, I don't know about that. And I said, well, if you won't confront it, I will, because I don't think we should carry on like this. So I did. Well, that's one more enemy chalked up. And of course, my colleagues knew that this was going to happen, uh, needless to say. Uh, and uh, it was sort of taken to tribunal arbitration, you know, the usual sort of thing. And, and the, the, you could see the administration and everybody else, the basic thing they wanted to do was shut me up, 
because this is the whistleblower, you know. Uh, if you uh, say this kind of thing and you have evidence that this should not have happened, uh, it's not only the person concerned, but it's the, it's the whole administration which has tolerated this and which has allowed them. People knew, I mean, it wasn't as if it was unknown, um, you know, that people knew uh, they're being called into question as well. So, of course, I made not just one enemy, but several uh, on that particular occasion. Uh, and it's very difficult when this happens because, of course, you cannot reconcile with that sort of person when this happens unless the wrongdoing is put right. Because it's public, it's not a personal thing. It's not as if somebody hit me on the cheek and I turned the other cheek. No, I mean it was something to do with institutional behavior, uh, and uh, you know, to pretend to reconcile without dealing with that, um, of course, would in effect be to admit uh, that there was nothing wrong with it. <laughs> you know, that you can get along, you can do this kind of thing and get away with it, uh, and you can't do that. Uh, you have to say, no, wrongdoing is wrongdoing, and if it's not put right, uh, well then, uh, you know, that we can't go any further with this. And if this is going to lead to enmity and difficulties of one kind or another, we don't want that, we don't asking for that, uh, but that is what is going to happen. Now, I say this because this is something that happens in the church. I don't have to mention the Episcopal Church, it's well known. Um, that disagreements of this kind, uh, you know, have plagued us, not just in uh, locally, but worldwide, for a long time. Uh, that there are people who will do things which are clearly wrong, uh, which need disciplining, but the discipline is non-existent. Uh, and so what do you do when this happens? You see, do you just say, well, you know, let's all hold hands together because, you know, we're all one in the, uh, one in the spirit uh, and carry on like this? Uh, well, no, you can't do that. Uh, you see, you have to say, no, wrong is wrong, and if wrong isn't put right, well, then we can't go any further than this. But the sort of person, uh, of course, who wants to just smooth all this over and isn't interested in this and thinks that unity at any cost is, uh, is preferable to any sort of uh, dissension or disagreement, will turn against you if you stand up for the truth in this way. You see, uh, you, you, you're going to face this, and this is what we face. Uh, and this is not something that anybody wants. Nobody is inviting this, uh, but uh, it is inevitable that it will happen. Now, I've just taken examples from my life because this is the kind of life that I lead. But I would uh, challenge you to think about your own life uh, and ask yourself in your workplace or in your family or whatever it is, in your circumstances, are you faced with similar things? You see, are you faced with situations where, uh, through no fault of your own and no desire of your own, uh, you find that you are alienating people uh, you know, for reasons which you may not even understand. You think, well, why, why is this person against me? What have I done? And it may be nothing, you know, at least not to you. Uh, but you may unwittingly uh, have stirred something up in them which turns them to hatred of you. Now, if this is happening in your life, think of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it happened to him. 
the man who never did any wrong to anybody, the man who was sinless, nevertheless had people who drove him to the cross. You see, when he was put on trial, uh, and Pontius Pilate uh, said, you know, uh, turned to the crowd and said, what, what has this man done? Uh, you know, I want to let him go, uh, and so on. He hasn't harmed anybody. What did they say? Crucify him. You see, they were so enraged and so uh, uh, angry with him. If this happens to him, how much more is it going to happen to us? The servant is not greater than his master. And if you follow Jesus Christ, then you must expect to follow along that very unhappy pathway. Well, that's it. So you do have enemies, uh, whether you want them or not. Uh, and if you don't know who they are uh, and you're not sure, well then ask yourself, are you really following Jesus? Because uh, if you are, they'll come along. You don't have to go looking for them. You will find them in due course. But Jesus deals with this. You see, he looks at this situation and he says, well, what do we do about this? Um, you see, uh, if you just love your friends the people who get along, you get along with, and so on. Uh, what's the good of that? Uh, you know, he said, everybody loves their friends. And this is a, a good and important thing to do. I mean, Jesus doesn't say you shouldn't have friends, and he doesn't say that you shouldn't love them. Of course you should. You see, that's a good and a right thing to do. But it's nothing special in a way. I mean, if you're naturally attracted to somebody and you, you have a relationship and so on, then this is what will follow from it. Now, of course, we all know uh, there's the, you know, the, uh, the well-known uh, thing that it's when you get into trouble that you find out who your real friends are. And you may have, you may think you have more friends than you actually do have. And again, I'm not recommending that anybody should get into trouble just to find this out. Um, but uh, some of you will know from your own experience uh, that when th you're down and out, when things go wrong in your life, who is there to help? Who comes round? Who actually uh, you know, lifts a finger on your behalf? Uh, and uh, those are who your real friends are. And this is a good thing. It's a right thing. And it's something that we should be practicing and we should be living out in our church life. I mean, I'm all for that. That's, and Jesus is all for that. But as he says, well, the tax collectors do the same. You know, you just picture uh, the sort of the IRS people, you know, in their, their little office sort of helping each other find all the loopholes uh, so that none of them pays any tax. Uh, I mean, this is what uh, friends do, isn't it? I mean, they, you know, they, that, that, that's it. They're in the business, and so they help each other out uh, in that particular way. And Jesus said, well, you know, you're only doing what they're doing. Um, that's nothing special, you see, in this way. And so he said, you need to do something more, you see, to be a follower of mine, to know me as I really am, you have to go beyond what would be expected in any case. And then he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, we tend to think, this is terrible. You know, this is sort of bloodthirsty justice and all this kind of thing. But Jesus didn't think that, nor did his hearers think that, nor is it true. Because when he was said this, he was actually quoting the Old Testament. In fact, this is said several times in the Old Testament. 
And the reason it is said there was not in order to be horrible and nasty to other people, but rather to put a limit on violence. Because when somebody does you an injury, your immediate temptation is to seek revenge, to seek compensation. And you want to overcompensate. You see, there's no limit. The outrage which has been done to you is not necessarily commensurate with the damage which you have suffered. Now, that this is the real problem, if you don't believe me, just turn on the television and listen to some of those ads. You know, these lawyers and people who get on there, and I'm, I'm not trying to criticize them, of course, uh, I wouldn't say a bad word against any of them, uh, but there they are, uh, you know, saying, uh, you know, have you been injured? Have you had this or that? Uh, you know, come to me and I'll, I'll make sure you get the maximum. You know, the last time I took somebody to court, I came back with $25 million. This is what you want. And you think, well, what did the person do? You know, stub your toe or something? Um, you know, uh, is, is this a, a, a recognized and a reasonable compensation? Well, of course, the person who's advertising is not doing that, is he? I mean, he will say, well, you want fair compensation. Sure, of course. But that what they're really saying to you is, we'll make sure you get way more than that. You know, far more than what you what you deserve. I mean, there was a case in Alabama. Some of you may remember. I remember it because it was so outrageous. Um, I think it must have been about 20 years ago now, where a man took his car in to have it repaired in the shop somewhere, and um, you know he got the car back, and somehow or other the the the, the worksheet had gone wrong or whatever. But anyway, uh, when he got the car back, it had he he had a respray. The, the company had resprayed the car, which he hadn't originally asked to do. He hadn't asked for, hadn't asked for that. So he sued them for this, and I think the damages were, uh, they were knocked back in the end, but it was several million dollars he got for this. Now, I remember listening to this and thinking, gosh, if somebody resprayed my car for nothing, <laughs> you know, I mean, would you complain? I wouldn't. I'd say, thank you very much. You know, <laughs> respray. I didn't ask for it, but I'm not going to say no. Um, you know, good for you. But no, you see, this, was, uh, uh, this wasn't taken that way at all. You see, it was a completely different way of thinking uh, in, in this respect. And so we have to realize that we live in this kind of world. People will go for the maximum they can get if they feel that they've been injured in some way. And whether it's a just compensation, a fair compensation, doesn't really interest them. And it was in this kind, to, to deal with this, uh, you see, that uh, the law of Moses was laid down, because an eye for an eye, that's all you can take, not a head for an eye, you know. Uh, and a tooth for a tooth, one tooth for one tooth, not the whole wallet, you know. Just one tooth. Keep it in proportion minimize the damage. You see, do you have a just uh, compensation? Yes, not that you shouldn't get any compensation, but it should be fairly uh, measured uh, and not, not escalate into some kind of vendetta, which of course would destroy uh, the, the society. If you know, once you start letting that go, I mean, where do you stop? You know, just go on and on. So the law was there to try to limit the damage. 
You see, to, to be fair and just, yes, but to limit it. And Jesus knew that, of course, and the, the scribes and the Pharisees knew that. They realized that this was, a, you know, this was what the purpose of it was. And so it's even more surprising, you see, that Jesus then deals with this. He said, yes, that's what you've been told. That's what's in the law. And that seems to be fair and just and so on as it, uh, as it stands. And he wasn't really criticizing or condemning that. But he was saying, I'm telling you something else. I'm telling you that you need to be proactive uh, in uh, dealing with this uh, situation, that to love your enemies, not just sue them uh, you know, for all they've got or, uh, or exact revenge in some way or other, but to look at them in a different way and to pray for them. Now, this is a strange thing to say. But I can tell you from my experience, and I've shared the stories that I've shared with you this evening because I've worked through the, these examples and others like them, and I can tell you how hard it is to get to that point. Uh, you can get to the point where you say, uh, well, let's forget it and move on. You can get to that point, yes. Um, you can get to the point where saying, well, there is no compensation. I mean, what compensation can you possibly have? Uh, you know, the damage has been done. It's not going to be put right. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's nothing we can do. Uh, it's terrible, but, you know, I can't, I can't do anything about it. And anything I do will only make the situation worse. So you don't do something, you realize that too. All right. That's another stage. But that's not enough. Jesus says something else. You must pray for this person. And to do that, you have to have a different attitude towards them. You have to think this is a person who can be redeemed by the Spirit of God. Now, I'll be perfectly honest. For people who do this kind of thing to me, I don't really want them to be redeemed. You know, it's bad enough having to live with them in this life. Who wants to spend eternity with people like that? You know, I always say to my students, I said, you should be glad I'm not God because you'd never get to heaven if I were God. I mean, you know, I put up with you in the, here, but uh, you know, when, when I go home and turn the lights off at night, I mean, I want peace and quiet. I, I'm certainly not having you in eternity. Thank you very much. Um, and so, you know, you look at it like this and uh, you realize that suddenly you see what this means. You see that you're actually taking a totally different view of this person. And you can only do this, of course, if you take a different view of yourself. Because to get to the point where you pray for another person, you have to realize that you too are a sinner saved by grace that you too could stand in their position. How many people have I offended with having no idea that I've done this? You see, how many people have I offended perhaps deliberately and forgotten about? Because I did the offending, so, you know, it doesn't bother me. I just was to move on. Uh, but other people might be hurting because of this, and I don't know. You know, there could be people who have hatred in their heart towards me for good reason. And I'm unaware of this, you see. And I have to realize this and I have to understand I am in the same position. Who am I uh, to turn on somebody who has done this to me uh, and uh, uh, have an air of superiority? I mean, okay, they may have done it to me, that's true. But uh, I have to realize uh, that, uh, you know, 
in the sight of God, none of us, including me, is innocent. You say, I'm not innocent, you're not innocent. We all need the Savior. We all need to be forgiven. And it's when we come to this realization that we can start to see that the only real, the right attitude towards another person is to pray for them. This, of course, doesn't mean that you're going to change them. You can't change them anyway. Uh, you know, only God can do that. But we have to begin with having a different attitude towards them. And then Jesus goes on and he says, well, you know, if somebody needs something, give them. If somebody asks you for your, clo- uh, for, for your uh, you know, what was it, your, your jacket or your tunic or something, give them your cloak, you know, go the extra mile. Uh, you, you know, sort of overcompensate in this way. And that's an interesting thing too. Again, I'm telling you stories. I'm sorry about this, but it sort of puts flesh on the on the bones. I edit a journal, a theological journal, which is a fate worse than death. But anyhow, um, when you edit when you edit journals or do something like this, you you learn something about the general public. Most people who read things, if they don't like it. They just put it on the shelf, forget about it. You know, life has, is, is too busy, they're not going to bother. But every once in a while, and people sort of reckon it's sort of one person in ten or one person in a hundred or something like that, is so worked up by what they've read that they write to you. And most of the people who write to me about what is in the journal that I edit are people who are incandescent with rage. <laughs> you know. Um, People don't write to me and say, oh, I love your journal. Why would they do that? <laughs> I mean, so what? You know, I love my journal too. I mean, they're not telling me anything I don't know already. No, it's because they're angry with me because I've said something that they don't like. And this is particularly difficult because I don't know who these people are. And I certainly haven't said whatever I've said in order to offend them personally. And my immediate temptation is to write back and say, dear so-and-so, thank you for writing. I said, if I'd known that you were going to take offense at this, I would have said more. (laughs) You know, why not, if you're going to get angry, you might as well get really, really angry. But I don't do this. I never do this. I have a sort of standard reply to this. Dear Mr. So-and-so, thank you very much for your very kind letter. I said, uh, you know, it is very difficult when you edit a journal and so on to know how people are reading it and what they're reacting, and your feedback is very important to me. Ha ha. You know. It's all right. I, I, I go to these restaurants where they, you know, where they give you the, the check at the end and say, you know, go into the uh, online or something and push this and give us your feedback because we're really interested. <laughs> no way. Um, so I've, I've learned a lesson there. But, uh, you know, you, uh, a very nice sort of reply, always very, very good. And so but I hope, you know, we'll, we'll be able to, to deal with this and so on. And it's very interesting because some people, of course, don't, they never write back. But, but one or two people do. And it's interesting to see how in, in, in several cases, I can say, because I've done this for over 30 years now, um, people write back and they're surprised. They're surprised to get that kind of response. 
because they think if they're incandescent with rage, I will be as well, and write back to them in a similar vein. You see, and I never do that. Ever do, don't ever do that if somebody does that. Always try to calm it down uh, and be as positive as you possibly can be. Now, that doesn't work with everybody. But it's interesting to see how uh, you, can, uh, you, you can change people's attitude. You may not change their opinion, but at least you can change their attitude by doing this. You see, and I think this is what Jesus is really getting at when he says this. If somebody demands this, you know, go the extra mile, do a little bit more than you're expected to do. Uh, and, and see what happens, you see. Uh, this happened to me again some years ago. I got audited for tax, would you believe, by the Alabama Department of Revenue. I didn't even know there was such a thing. But uh, this woman turned up in my office and she was going to audit me for tax for the state of Alabama. And I thought, oh goodness. Um, you know, and of course she gave me sort of advance warning and so on. So I got everything together, prepared it all, and I said, is that enough? Do you want more? And I was prepared to help her, you see, to do everything that she possibly uh, could want. Uh, and she said, oh, she said, I never expected this degree of cooperation. She said, most people I go to, she said, they can't find their, 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 their forms, they can't find anything, you know, they're, they're, they're busily sort of trying to be as obstructionist as they possibly can be. And I said, no, 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 I said, you know, uh, there you are, go ahead. Anyway, she took the stuff away and uh, she, she looked for something wrong. Now, of course, I knew uh, that she was going to find something, of course, you know. And in the end, after six months, she came back and she said, uh, I have found that you owe the state of Alabama $70.23, three years back tax. And I said, what have I done wrong? And she said, well, you didn't keep a logbook uh, for your uh, journey, you know, your travel expenses down to a tenth of a mile, which apparently you're supposed to do. That's what she found. And I said, oh. And so she said, you don't have to accept this. You see, you can contest this. And I said, look, my dear, I said, look, you have been doing this for six months. How much does this cost the state of Alabama? You know, and all you want from me is $70.23. I said, you say I can contest this. Well, that's true, of course. I could go to a lawyer and, and, and contest this. Walking into the lawyer's office would cost me more than $70.23. I said, the cheapest option for me is just to write the check. I said, I know it's highway robbery, literally. You know that too. I said, but I want to cooperate. And so I said, I just wrote the check out. I said, there you are, take it away. And I've never heard another thing, you know, uh, since then. And I felt afterwards, I said, well, you know, what's going on here? And I realized this poor woman, I mean, obviously she had nothing against me personally. That was, she was just doing her job. But she said to me, she said, I've never had this kind of cooperation from somebody. And I said, well, you know, I'm not trying to, to, to steal your money. I'm not trying to take anything away. I want, I want to go the extra mile. I actually said that, uh, you know, for her, because I'm a Christian and I want to do this. And, you know, I want to make like, your life easier. I mean, uh, if I possibly can. And if, 
you know, it's harmful to me in some way. Well, uh, you know, it's not that, I mean, it's not, it's not as if I'm going to be on the breadline. I can live with this. But my conscience, I would feel better doing this than going into all kinds of tricks, uh, you know, to save what, $70? You know? Well, uh, I, I've got to tell you another story about this because I, 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 clearly you're on, we're on a roll here. Um, but <laughs> a couple of years later, I got a refund, would you believe, this time from the federal government. And the left, talk about the left hand not knowing what the right hand was doing. The, uh, the notice for the refund came from Memphis, $2.73 I got as a refund. The check came from Austin, Texas, $2.74. And I just about died. I thought, I'm going to go to jail for one cent. You know, they sent me one cent more than I was entitled to. And I looked at this and I looked it over and down on the bottom it said, one cent interest. I got interest on what they owed me, $2.74. How much did it cost the IRS to send that? Don't ask this question. You know, next time you think the country's going down the tubes, you know why, because they're refunding that kind of money uh, to people. Nevertheless, I accepted it gratefully, went out and blew it on a cup of coffee, and we've been happy ever since. You see, don't complain about it. I'm just sharing you, this, sharing this with you, uh, you know, as a fact. Uh, and it's the way we live. You see, it's the way we deal with these things. Uh, we have to ask ourselves whether it's right or wrong, good or bad, whatever it is, uh, to, to have the right approach, the right attitude uh, to these things goes a long way. So it doesn't necessarily solve every single problem, but uh, it changes the atmosphere, it changes the attitude. And this is, I think, what Jesus wanted to tell his disciples, that if you turn to people and do good that is unexpected, if you react to them in a way that they, they, they've never had been reacted to before and the last thing they would think would happen, to, to, would happen, then you are really preparing the way for the gospel because you are showing to these people that you are not a normal person, uh, that you don't react in the way that the average person does that there's something motivating you which comes from another place. And they may start asking questions. What makes you do this? Why do you behave like that? Why aren't you like everybody else? And then, of course, you can talk about Jesus and what he has done for you and how he has changed your life. And that's what Jesus wants you to do. You may be crucified for it, there's no guarantee that you won't be. But at least you will be walking in the steps of the Savior and following him. Now in a couple of minutes we're going to be gathering round the Lord's table and remembering that sacrifice on the cross that he made for us. And what I would leave with you tonight, and I want to challenge you on this, is what's going on in your heart. Have you got in your heart something against another person? Are you feeling something in you that you've been treated badly, treated wrongly? 
How are you dealing with that? You see, what are you, what are, what's going on in your mind? And I would ask you as you come tonight, as you take this bread and you take this cup, to take it into your life and remember that this is what Jesus did for you. That he gave his body, he shed his blood so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be given a new life. And allow him to touch that thing which is on your mind, that thing which is bothering you, that thing which is holding you back. And know in your heart and in your life what it means to truly be born again, to start afresh, to begin a new and perfect life with him. Amen.